This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Ken Oliver, the new executive director of Checker's Corporate Social Responsibility Foundation, Checker.org. I am both thrilled and honored to join the Checker team and to lead their mission to build a fair future of work. We believe the baseline for the future begins with this country's most vulnerable workers. The more than 70 million people in America who have some form of a criminal record in their past. As someone who has been directly impacted by the criminal justice myself, I know just how difficult it is for people with a criminal record to gain access to gainful employment and to rebuild their lives. At Checker, we found the most amazing team members from this untapped talent pool. We've done this not only because giving people a fair chance is the right thing to do, but also because it's made great business sense. Being innovative in the way we've approached untapped talent has helped us be more innovative in the way we approach business. And we believe that path leads to more equitable and fairer communities. Here at Death by Incarceration, we're committed to truth, justice, and the idea that every person should be granted the opportunity to change. Our upcoming interviews, new content, and social media posts will be taking on the issues of re-entry, education in prison, and the latest Supreme Court decisions. As always, we'll be delivering our content unedited and raw. Thank you very much for listening to our show and for your support. Please go over to Apple, rate us, let us know what you think of what we're doing, and more importantly, listen. We're pleased to welcome Ken Oliver, executive director of Checker.org. After spending 24 years in California's criminal justice system, eight of which were in solitary confinement, Ken was released. He's not really stopped since, first as a certified paralegal for public interest law firm, then moving on to direct action and activism. In 2021, Ken led an effort to secure a historic $28.5 million investment in the state of California. These funds were used to develop the first of its kind residential and technology training program for justice impacted people in this country. Ken has become a sought after leader and speaker on issues such as criminal justice reform, tech equality, personal leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the governor's future of work initiative. Ken currently serves on the board of San Mateo County Community Colleges Foundation, Turning Basin Labs, CROP, Climb Higher, and the Law and Social Justice Pathway Program for Oakland High School. We had an amazing conversation with Ken, and I'm so happy to be able to share it with you. My name is Ken Oliver, and I'm the executive director of Checker.org, Checker's Corporate Foundation and CSR program. Glad to be here and ready to talk about all things criminal justice reform, reentry, economic opportunity, how we can provide pathways for folks to get into this middle-class economy. 
I'll kind of start with how I landed in this particular job and this particular role and why I'm so passionate about these issues. I served 24 years in a California prison, almost nine years in solitary confinement for reading a book about the Black Panther Party. And as a result of that, with the help of Stanford University and a law firm by the name of Mayor Brown, we successfully executed a civil rights lawsuit against the state of California for placing me in solitary confinement, which resulted in me being released from prison and, and the Department of Corrections settling the case for a financial amount. And when I got out of prison in 2019, I went to work as a paralegal based on a lot of the uh, legal work I had done in prison for a public interest law firm. And after doing that for a few months, I was promoted to be a state policy director where I worked on the front end of criminal justice reform in California, most notably restoring voting rights for people who were on parole, worked on a lot of fines and fees, economic justice work, and a lot of different bills that came out in 2019 and 2020 um, that helped level the playing field a little bit when it came to uh, criminal justice reform. And then in 2020, two of my friends, my very good friends, were given a computation by Governor Gavin Newsom for a body of work that we had did in prison over the course of 10 years. And when they came home, you know, it was right at the beginning of COVID. And when COVID happened, they weren't allowed to go back into the prison to continue the work that they had done that was responsible for them getting out of prison, which was formally, I mean, basically based on a, a personal leadership development curriculum they had developed. And so they called me up and asked me what I was doing. And I told them that I had some ideas about how to reimagine reentry in California. I think I told them that I wanted to invent or create the Stanford of reentry programs, where it would be high expectation, high touch, high attention, high quality, high support, and really provide men and women who are exiting incarceration an opportunity to reset their life in a meaningful way, in a healthy way, and get them on a pathway to economic mobility where they could make as much money as everybody else could and get the things that they wanted without having to be subjected to playing the corners on the streets in short. Amazing. I mean, let's roll back a little bit because, you know, I think one of the things that is important, and we've talked about this in our weekly meetings with Checker, but is proximity. And so talk a little bit about, especially, you know, this has been a huge issue across the country. And I know where Suave's from in Philadelphia, there is a group right now, um, the Abolitionist Law Center, that's trying to end solitary confinement in Pennsylvania, which has been an incredibly difficult task. And I think it's important that people hear how solitary impacts people. And I'd like to hear from you, Ken, what that was like for you. And Suave had a lot of experience with that as well. And I'm, I'm happy to have him join in this in this question. Sure. So I'll, I'll start with the solitary confinement and I'll touch briefly on the proximity and, and a little bit further the trajectory. So. You know, one of the things that I did when I was in prison is I attempted to stay connected to the streets by having conversations with some of the greatest minds that ever existed on this planet. And so I, I really dived into becoming a voracious reader. And I used to spend my time reading about current events. I read, you know, the Wall Street Journal. I read, you know, Entrepreneur and Business Magazines. And I read a lot about history and attempting to understand the trajectory of history, understanding philosophy and all of those different things. And it never occurred to me that one of the hundreds of books I always had in my cell would be responsible for landing me in solitary confinement. And so as, as, as a black male um, in the prison system, one of the things that I had a, a strong interest in is learning about black history and learning about how my own personal trajectory was relevant in a historical context. And, you know, part of that black history is reading about people like W. E. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and Paul Lawrence Dunbar and James Baldwin, et cetera. And, you know, the Black Panther Party and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And, you know, one day I'll never forget 
you know, I let one of my friends read an article about Black August. And Black August is a celebration that's celebrated across the world to celebrate African-Americans and others who have given their life to the struggle and ultimately sacrificed their life for the struggle. And so Nat Turner and, and uh, Toussaint L'Overture and, and others all in the month of August died, including George Jackson and Jonathan Jackson and others, while fighting for a cause greater than themselves, Black liberation. And the friend of mine brought the article to me and I threw it on my bed and went to dinner. And by the time I came back from dinner, you know, a couple of my friends told me like, Ken, there's like 15 officers at your cell, you know, searching and tearing up your cell. And, you know, I didn't know why. And then I found out when I went up there, when they put me in handcuffs, they put yellow tape on my door and they said, you know, you shouldn't be having this political material in your cell. And I said, what are you talking about? I've had these books for decades. I, at the time I had the book for like 14 years. And they took me to administrative segregation and told me they were placing me under investigation because I had too much political reading material. And I remember thinking while I was in administrative segregation, like, these people are nuts. Like I'm, I'm just sitting there educating myself as, as, as a black man. I'm not bothering anybody. I didn't do anything. And then one day an investigation officer came and he said, you're going to solitary confinement indefinitely. And I said, for what? And he said, for having this material and having, the, having these books. I said, well, I got these books through legal means. They came through the prison system. They were ordered, you know, by my family and, and girlfriend at the time. And they said that, you know, the prison administration feels like I'm the minister of education is the word that he used for a prison gang. And I was advocating for black politics in a way that threatened the prison system. And so there I went, you know, I went to the indeterminate solitary confinement, what they call the shoe, and was in a cell 24 hours a day, every single day, a couple of times a week. If we were lucky, they came to shackle us up and take us out to a dog kennel, which was about an eight by 10 cell made of chain link fence and um, allowed us to exercise for a couple hours. And what I did, Kevin, to keep my sanity, because I watched grown men lose their mind in solitary. You know, I was, I was there for eight and a half years. There were cats there for 10, 20, 30. You know, Hugo Pinnell was there 40 years in solitary confinement. One of the things that I wanted to do was double down on reading. And so I just immersed myself in the law because I, I knew that if I was going to ever get out of solitary confinement, that I had to learn the game of the people that had me there, the legal game and understand the way that they played with words and language and how they justified placing an individual in a prison underneath a prison for reading a book. And I wanted to understand that from a constitutional perspective. And, and to be honest with you, if I'm just being completely transparent, what fueled me is that I knew that this is what, this is the kind of thing that my ancestors went through. That when we came over here in, in shackles, that s slave owners in the South would execute us and, and lynch us for daring to teach ourselves to read and become educated. There were laws in the books in Alabama and in the South that prohibited slaves from being able to read or educate themselves. I mean, these were laws that, that could cost, cost you your life. And so for me, there was no way in the world I was gonna lay down, you know, and just say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna accept this. So I wanted to understand it mostly. And, and once I began to understand it, I started to learn how to play it. And I started to be able to craft legal briefs in a way that fought and met them where they were at. And, you know, through those efforts, I was able to, you know, get myself out of there and, and, and ultimately be vindicated for why they had been solitary for almost a decade. But it was it, it's an experience that I don't wish on anybody. I mean, while I was doing it, it, it felt it, it didn't it didn't affect me where I could notice it. It was happening viscerally. So, you know, I still lived in a prison environment and I still, you know, 
kept the fullness of my manhood intact as far as, you know, the prison culture and all of that. But I noticed when I got out of prison, I went on a lot of panels across the country speaking with legal groups and advocacy groups about solitary confinement, like, you know, like Suave does. And I used to talk about it effortlessly. And then one day, maybe after I'd done it like 25 times, I started to speak about it. And then like the little whack-a-mole started popping up in my head about how this had affected me. And I couldn't get through a description of what happened in solitary confinement without getting emotional. Like, you know, physically like tears would come to my eyes and it would remind me of like thoughts of not being able to touch my kids or have a phone call or to be able to have a contact visit or any of those things about sleeping on a piece of concrete, my boxers and t-shirt for a decade. And so, yeah, it's, it's not, it's the United Nations has said it's torture. I, I know that my ancestors were tortured when you get burned alive and tarred and feathered, that's torture to me. So I, I don't try to put myself in that same category because I understand what torture is, but it's about as close to psychological torture as you can probably get to live through that for the amount of decades that the state of California and others across the country have done it. So, and what, what facility were you in, by the way? I was in Corcoran. Yeah. Okay. There, there's two, there's two primary solitary confinement places, Pelican Bay yep. and Corcoran. Um, I was sent to Corcoran, participated in the largest hunger strike ever in the United States, uh, where yep. 30,000 of us, man, went days without eating. It's, that's hard to talk about because several cats in my building died lost their life as a result of starving themselves to death to get national attention to this particular issue. Prisoners claim they have not been given the concessions demanded in previous hunger strikes, so they're doing it again. 30,000 inmates skipped breakfast on the first day, but the state does not consider them to be on a hunger strike until they've missed nine consecutive meals. The inmates want the state to end what they call the torture of long-term solitary confinement, stop making prisoners inform on each other, end group punishment and give prisoners something constructive to do. The state says they need these security units for gang members and potential killers. The security housing unit is intended to house inmates whose conduct threatens the safety of other people or the institution. Some inmates um, are placed in the security housing unit because they've committed a specific offense like murder, attempted murder, arson, once they go into solitary, it's almost impossible to get out. 500 prisoners have been in solitary 10 years or more. Tino Aguilar says it's torture. It's, it's nothing but torture because they leave you there for nothing. You're sitting there in yourself for all that time and all you're doing is sitting in there. A lot of people miss that. And, and I want to I just pin that if we can. When a state system has failed folks, these, these men who many people had thrown away or thought they were worthless fought for a cause that was bigger than themselves and ultimately sacrificed their life in the same way that any martyr, whether you, you know, whether you say it's Jesus or whether you say it's, you know, Muhammad or whether you say it's Martin Luther King or whoever, sacrificed their life for a cause that was bigger than them. And when those families came up to prison, their mothers came up and were demanding answers about why they had died. You know, many of us wrote their mothers and I exchanged a few letters with their family members. The gravity and the, and the heaviness of men who starved themselves to death to show society that throwing people away in solitary confinement was unconscionable. And you know, California had a policy where when you go to solitary, you can't get out unless you snitch parole or die. Those were the words of, Cal of prison officials. Parole, by force, you had to tell on somebody to go to another facility or die. You yeah. just aged out. And so, you know, I just want to give a pause to those family members again that lost their sons in, in 
something that allowed people like me and others to become free and do the work that I'm doing now. I'll never forget that. It left an indelible impression on me in my life. Well, it looks like he wants to jump in. He, he had a lot of experience with solitary early on too. So I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. First of all, thanks for sharing. You know, as he was talking, I was reminiscing on my little seven years in solitary confinement. And I was just telling somebody yesterday that for me, solitary confinement was torture. But at the same time, you know, it changed my life because it's where I learned how to read. It's, it's where I learned how to write. It's where I learned how to play the art of war with the system. And it's where I told myself, like, that would never break me, you know, because it tested me. To, it, it tested me to the point where I could either go crazy, commit suicide, or rock it out and get out and make it home. You know, so as you were speaking, it was almost like, like, damn, this shit is real. I'm not the only one that went through it. You know, and I was next to, I was next door to a couple of brothers at that time that had 30, 40 years in solitary. So it's very real. And I don't think America understand that most of these brothers that they end up in solitary confinement are coming back home. A lot of them are not lifeless. A lot of them go to solitary confinement and come home with that psychological effect that, uh, could be dangerous to, to the community, to their family, and to themselves. Because uh, there's certain things that I won't speak about. Not because I can't, it's because the emotional. I don't think I'm ready for that emotional process to speak about certain things. So yeah, I understand what you're saying, man, but look how you turned out. Like, I mean, well, well, the jury might still be out on how it turned out, Swabe, but I, I mean, it's- well, listen, you know. when I mean, look how you turned out. I'm, I'm talking about the position that you hold today, which is a very important position because we all know that when brothers and sisters come home from doing any amount of time, how hard it is to get in the workplace. I, I could speak that from experience. I just got hired to uh, administrate a reentry program at a community college. Today, HR called me in because my Social security card, my name is spelled with an S, but all my documentation is spelled with a Z. So now I got to locate my social security card, bring it to them on Monday if I want to get paid. And I'm like, you couldn't do this when y'all was doing the venting and the process. Like, you know, so it's still, you know, in some way, we still being discriminated on. Oh, for sure. There's no question about that. but but it's worth the fight. It's worth the fight because more of us needs to be in dumb positions, you know, to call these people out when we get there. That's that's actually a great segue into the issue of proximity, right, Kevin? Exactly. I think I, I've been extremely fortunate. I tell people all the time that, you know, I had the help of Stanford and one of the biggest law firms in the country helped get me out of solitary confinement and helped me sue the state. And and I'm I'm so humbled and grateful for that because I watch cats languish for years fighting, filing every kind of lawsuit you could file, 1983 lawsuits and federal lawsuits and state lawsuits trying to get out of solitary and and complain. And 99.8% of the time, there's no legal help for those people. And 99.8% of their time, their lawsuits are usually summarily dismissed. You know, the, the, the judges, the federal judges, don't like to take a hands-on approach. The, the attorney generals are seasoned lawyers who came from some of the best schools in the country that know how to 
locate a misplaced comma or a misplaced phrase and get your whole lawsuit dismissed. And when I came home, they were instrumental in helping me get hired at a public interest law firm for to be a paralegal. And and ultimately the the public interest law firm that I went to work for, the executive director there was a formerly incarcerated individual who had been out for about 40 years and had been really in the forefront of criminal justice reform and fighting for the civil rights of people who were formerly incarcerated before it became fashionable. And that recently in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, we can talk about criminal justice sentencing reform and all that. But, you know, Dorsey Nunn has been doing this since the 80s when no one, there were no other organizations doing formerly incarcerated civil rights and human rights. And I, I, I credit him for giving me a chance to work and to spread my wings. He, he, he made me a policy director when I didn't even know what policy was. And you know, he gave me the space to learn and to cut my teeth and to go up and talk to people who were making laws in this state because he knew that I had a voice and he wanted me to exercise it. He didn't, he didn't teach me how to do it. He didn't coddle me. He, didn't, he said, I'm going to throw you in the deep end, right? And, and, and you're going to go up there and learn how to do it. And I know you can do it. I have faith in you to do it. And so because of that, I was eventually hooked up with my two buddies I was mentioned earlier and, and they had a nonprofit that they had started and they asked me to come on and I laid out this plan to build this reentry program where we would take men and women from prison the day they walk out, we'd give them housing where we would give them their own room and their own bathroom because we believe in dignity. We don't believe that you should put six people in a room stacked on bunk beds, sharing one bathroom and all of that other kind of reentry nonsense that goes on because it takes away from people's human dignity when you do that. And then we said, okay, well, let's put money in people's pockets. So we said, okay, we're going to give people a place to live and then we're going to give them $1,000 a month and we're going to teach them personal leadership development and digital literacy and financial literacy. And then what we're going to do is we're going to give people job skills. We're going to train people to enter the middle-class economy. And so I kind of look at it, I like to frame it as it's job core for formerly incarcerated people, right? Where people get a chance to reset, you have no responsibilities other than really just apply yourself to learning and positioning yourself because life is about positioning, right? And if, if, if people are getting out of prison and they're not positioned and they get $100 in gate money, and they're told to go find a place to live and to go handle your business, that creates a lot of potholes and, and landmines for failure. And it shows up in the recidivism rate. It shows up in the communities that we have to go back to. And then the opportunities that Suave spoke to, how difficult it is to get employment. And not just any employment, livable wage employment. Like if you tell me you're going to give me a job for $14 an hour in San Francisco, that may be great. But guess what? You can't pay rent in San Francisco with that. You can't eat in San Francisco with that. You can't buy gasoline at $5.40 a gallon in San Francisco with that. So then what are, we, what are we saying to people if we're saying we're willing to pay your slave wages in essence, but you can't afford to live. You can't afford to rebuild your life. You can't afford to you know, buy the basic necessities. And so we started hatching that plan, Kevin, and then we started building partnerships. I went to Google and had this same conversation. I went to Microsoft and had this conversation. I went to Oracle and had this same conversation. And I started to get some traction and having some people listening, you know, and this is on the heels of George Floyd and, and, you know, economic and racial reconciliation in this country. And every company has some type of program, it seems like, where they're trying to diversify and, and, you know, balance the scales a little bit. And so once they agreed to kind of provide some training programs and do some stuff for justice impacted people, I took that show to the California legislature and the governor's office and had hundreds of conversations about why recidivism 
was as high as it was in California for the last four or five decades? What are the things that are really needed to position people for success? How we can focus on decarceration and investing in people over these punitive punishment models? Because at the end of the day, when you treat people well and you support people and you lift them up, you get a better result. That's just human nature. And I don't want to be crass, but when you when you when you treat people poorly or take dumps on people, usually it's human nature. The result isn't that good, right? People people don't respond to that too favorably. And so, credits go off to the state. You know, the same state that had me in solitary is the same state that this past July gave me and my organization twenty eight point five million dollars to build out the first residential tech training program in this country. And what's important about that, Kevin, it addresses your point, is there were three things that I, that I talked to the California legislature about. The first one was the power of proximity and proximate leadership. And now people who have lived it, people like me and Suave and thousands of others who have the lived experience to understand what's needed to fix something because we've been through it. They, they, agreed, to, they agreed with that. And they agreed that whatever they had been doing before with people who were walking out of universities reading about criminal justice in a book couldn't provide the type of answers necessary to to heal California in, in, in its mass incarceration problem. The second thing that they agreed to was the conversation about the future of work and why black and brown people, not only in the community, but who were exiting incarceration were expected to just do physical labor jobs at low at low clips. Meaning they're quick to give you a job with an orange vest, picking up stuff on the side of the freeway or, or putting you over here for a low wage. But very rarely are we valued for our thought capital and how we can participate in the knowledge-based economy or technology-based economy. And, and I, I was very frank and transparent with the legislature. I told them, listen, some of the smartest men I've ever met in my life, the brightest came from the streets. Some of the smartest people that I've ever been around could go toe to toe with any person that came from a university, depending on the topic that they've ever met. And the only thing that was stopping most people was what they had exposure to and access to. You know, people in Watts typically don't have access to Stanford Campus University or Google's campus or, you know, one of these other places. And, you know, they 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 listened to that. And and they understood that if we're to bridge the digital divide between black and brown communities and, and what's happening in, in the tech space and the future of work, that we needed to find a way to give people the skills necessary to compete with what's happening in this economy and automation and AI and all this other stuff. And then the third thing that I talked to them about that they, to their credit, went for was the need for human-centered and holistic solutions to social problems. And that you can't have in re-entry one organization that does housing a little bit, and then one organization over here that does transitional jobs a little bit, and then one organization over here that does mental health treatment a little bit, and one organization over here that does gender something over here, that these things need to be integrated, where we treat the person as the whole person, and we address all of the needs that they have in order to fully reintegrate back into society and make them whole uh, and give them the best opportunity to succeed. And so the power of proximity, I didn't know if it would work or not. It was something that I learned about, and you know, when I advocated for it, more than 100 politicians in California believed it. And then as a result of that, I think corporate America started to believe it. And that's how Checker called me. And, and they were in the process of forming a, fair, a foundation that focused on fair chance hiring. And it's, it's a mission that Checker's had for several years. And, you know, 6% of their workforce is formerly incarcerated people who've been in prison, which is phenomenal for a tech company. And they asked me, would I be interested in, in leading that work and nationalizing that work across this country? And 
you know, after having several conversations with them, you know, I saw that there was an opportunity to really scale this and get out in the front and convince businesses who really have the, the, the keys in many ways to making this happen, um, convince businesses that they should create fair chance hiring programs and then give people who are coming out of prison an opportunity to get on their feet and work and, and do all those types of things. And so that's how I landed as the uh, head of the Checker Foundation. And it's, it's, it's a nod to Daniel and uh, my boss, Naeem, the CFO, for believing in proximity too, because they could have easily hired somebody who had foundation experience. They could have easily hired somebody that just walked out of Stanford or Berkeley here in the Bay Area, but they didn't. They, they wanted somebody with lived experience. And so that really is a testament to their leadership and their dedication to the mission. Well, I'm hoping we see that more and more. That's the, even the, the social security card that Suave is talking about in his, in his experience right now, it's because he's the first formerly incarcerated individual that has been hired in the administration at Community College of Philadelphia. And I mean, on one hand, it's great because he broke that barrier. On the other hand, it's 2022. Right. <laughs> we got one in five Americans that have been convicted of a crime. That's right. You know, how in the hell do we get here? I mean, th- we're talking about a 20% of the population voting block that are all adults, all of voting age. That's right. right? And, you know, I think it's it's really interesting that um, what you're talking about, too, because the, the job I was first hired at with my felony record in California, we were hiring people. This was 22 years ago, and everybody thought they were crazy. You know, what are you hiring a bunch of ex-cons and junkies for? You know, <laughs> that's kind of the attitude. And it's amazing to see the shift. The, the, uh, the one thing I do want to kind of, you know, push on a little bit, too, and I think this is where we're having you in a position like this, Suave in a position like he's in, you know, and more and more individuals that have been truly, and I'm not, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords out there, you know, justice impacted and all that other stuff. But I mean, we're talking about individuals that spent a lot of time in prison, a lot of time in solitary confinement, have dealt with not only the original trauma that probably got you there in the first place, but the trauma of being incarcerated in this country in these positions is that it's not just about companies making commitments. It's having people that have been there, hold them accountable to it. And I think that's the the pivot that's now starting to form. You know, you've got you getting hired there. That, same thing with community college. They could have hired a, a experienced administrator, but they were having trouble getting the guys and women that were coming out to really connect with the program. You know, and now that Suave is in there talking to him every day, all day long, you know, and I think putting this into a perspective of a, of a national crisis, and it is a human, human rights crisis, in my opinion, it's not a political issue. And, and then coming up with solutions that are holistic is going to be the key to this, because it, when we see these splintered organizations, what we see is people falling through the cracks. You know, I, I'm I'm like when 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 Lauren told me what was going on with Checker.org, and then she told me who was getting hired to run it. I was, I, you know, between on this call on this interview, you know, I can talk about my excitement because now it's happened. When she first told me, I wasn't allowed to say anything, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't it wasn't news yet. But it, yeah. it is so exciting, you know, and it's it should be exciting for anyone that's that's had to deal with the continued bias of having a criminal record that these things are happening and and, you know not just because it's an inspiration which is great but more because now we got guys like you and suave in positions where you can actually influence decisions and hold these people accountable to what they commit to 
That's right. I, I think I, I want to just double click on something that you said earlier, Kevin, because I, I don't think it's it's an issue that enough people are aware of. And I just want to highlight it for a minute. So we, we've created a justice system in this country that is based on a punitive model. And people think that when a person goes to prison, they're paying their debt to society. What What's less talked about is what happens when a person walks out the door from prison or jail. And in this country, we've created second-class citizenship for people who have some form of a criminal record. Now, to put some context around that, that, that is a holdover from King's England about a thousand years ago where there was this thing called civil death, where if you violated a law, you would be civilly dead forever. You wouldn't be able to marry, you wouldn't be able to do any of the, the civil, civil engagement things, vote or anything else. And in this country, we're asking people, or we've created a system where people who have made a mistake in their life, or even a few mistakes, are forced to carry this like scarlet letter, or this like cowbell, I call it, around their neck to where every time they're asked a question at a place of employment, every time they go apply for housing, every time they go attempt to access a social service. There's this thing that they're handcuffed by, which is the form of criminal conviction. Doesn't matter if it happened two years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. That criminal record stops so many people from accessing opportunity. And so I think, you know, we really need to ask ourselves, like if that's the system that we're, we're buying into, then what is it that we're expecting the 70 million people who have some form of a criminal record in this country? Eight million people in California alone have felony convictions. What are we expecting those people to do? If you don't wanna give them access to housing, you don't wanna give them access to livable wage employment, you don't wanna give them access to all different types of social services, you don't wanna let them get licenses to sell real estate or to cut hair or to do any of the things that are, are occupational license barriers in this state. I'm not sure anyone, I've heard any intelligent answer about what we expect this large segment of the population to do if we're not gonna allow them to rebuild their lives and move on from a mistake that they made. Even though the data says that everything you did before 26 shouldn't even count. I mean, we've passed sentencing laws that say the brain isn't developed until a person is past 26 years old, right? And if that's the case, why are we still using criminal records from people before they were 26? And why are we still making them pay the cost, even though that may have been 15 or 20 years ago, it's stopping people from, from being able to move on with their lives. And so I think as a society and as a community, we need to ask ourselves, are we a society or community of not forgiveness? Cause I'm not, I'm not asking anybody to forgive me. What I'm asking people for is to allow me the opportunity to move on. Right. And I'm asking for everyone else who served their time to move on. Right. People should be allowed to move on and rebuild and reset and do all those different types of things. So I just wanted to I just wanted to highlight that because it is a second prison sentence that people are forced to to carry around in many ways. And uh, it's something that we desperately need to change. Well, I haven't seen a, a tree or a plant since, since 2003. The only thing that I've seen is a spider in the corner, and I find them little bugs sometimes, and I feed the spider. That's about the only closest thing to nature I have. Wow, jump I mean, in, man. I mean, what's your, what's your after-prison experience? What's your supervision look like? I mean, I think that the people that's making decisions have a disconnect with the reality of the people that's in the system. And this is the unfortunate reality in America. We have people that don't know nobody in prison, but yet they want to make decisions for them people coming home. You know, my experience is I went in as a young guy, a youth, came home an adult, educated, 
three degrees and that one mistake 30 something years ago was the reason why I wasn't exposed to different opportunities and I applied for different stuff but it was always like well this happened we can't hire you and I'm like all these fake ass politicians that you see in the city that collect these grants and get this money to advocate you know they just sit in the sideline talking about well that's the HR department problem not mine so why is we gonna make noise and take photo ops pictures and stuff when it, when it's time oh we got banned the box banned the box where they're not supposed to but they're still doing it they're still doing it like I said I sat in HR today from 10 o'clock to about 3 o'clock trying to explain to this lady why my social security is spelled different in my documentation. I'm like, can you, I couldn't do this when you have vented me for the job since December. Like you had to wake a week before payroll to figure that out. Like, come on, is you only doing it because, cause that's what I've, that's what, that's what it feels like. You know, when they start asking you, well, you know, we gotta be extra careful. I'm already hired. I'm already in the department. So, you know, what's the problem? Well, the social security don't match. I said, no, y'all wrote it that way, not me. Because before I y'all even hired me, the social security card was submitted. So now they want a physical. Well, we got to make sure that that's actually your social security card. So now I got it located, finally take it back. You know, but this is the type of stuff that people that's been in the system are going to keep going through. That's not going to change. You know, even though I'm happy that I'm in a position where I'm overseeing a department that offer free education to anyone that's been, quote unquote, impacted by the system for free. You know, I wonder, did you really hire me to make a difference? Or did you hire me because you know what comes with hiring me? You know, which one is it? And I think that's a conversation that got to be had. You know, because it's almost like it's almost like reliving that fear that that they're gonna use this as an excuse to resend the offer or to take the job. You feel me? Even though I know they're not gonna do that, but that's how you feel. That's how you feel. You know, so I'm like, damn, will you do this shit to Kevin? No. <laughs> I mean you understand what I'm saying? No, for sure. So so it's almost like there's still more work to be done. They still a whole work. lot more. Yeah, you know, I don't care if they hired me. I don't care if they hired you and put us in these positions of leadership. That's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Especially in Philadelphia, it's not enough. It's all over the you country, know? brother. And 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 to me, when they start talking about, well, you the first, you know, I don't I don't like that kind of language. Because when you the first, that means they expect you to do a whole lot. They want to use you as an example. You see, we hired this guy and it didn't work out, but we did hire him. We opened the door. You know, so what I'm saying to people in America is that we need to start exercising our voting power in some states where returning citizens have the voting power. We need to come out and we need to start putting people in power that's in the line with our issues. We need 
to support those that are already in power that support our issues to make sure that they stay there so we keep uh, um, getting that support. We need to bring programs like the one you got in California. And instead of trying to be, I'm the first one that did this or the first one that did that, nah, my brother in California did it, so now we're gonna bring it over here because if it works in California, it's definitely gonna work in Pennsylvania where we got the highest population of, uh, of lifers, period. We're going on 6,000 lifers in the state. Yeah. So, you know, something got to be done, but it has to be done on a national level where brothers understand that it's not about you anymore. It's not about me anymore. It's about those coming after. Because we could easily say, you know what, we in, we got a good position, good benefits, good this. I don't need to make no noise. I'm going to just enjoy this ride. But that's not what it's all about. That's not what it's all about. You know, so the people that's hearing this need to understand that we need to hold accountable all them people they moonlight as advocates and re-entry advocates. We need to hold them accountable. And even though I don't want nobody to go to prison, when they start acting up, guess what? Federally indict all of them and take that shit because they take, they're using them federal grants for their personal reasons. When they're supposed to be helping our segment of the population that has nothing. I'll pass you the mic, Kevin. Well, I, I mean, there's so much, you know, that, that you two have said. I will say this, too, is, is, you know, Suave and I have been doing this together for coming up on a year. And, I, Ken, I have read, you know, everything I can about your story, watched videos, done, because I like to know the people that I'm interviewing. And we're also working together on another project. And, and you know, I think it's important to know who you're who you're working with. And the actual stories, the individual stories, the personal stories, the kind of, you know, when you say sitting on a cement slab in your, in your underwear and a t-shirt for a decade, you know, I got a little choked up when you guys were, even though I've read and heard these stories from both of you a number of times, just through listening to other shows and Suave and I talk all the time. I think people really, really need to understand one storytelling is probably the single greatest tool that we have in terms of understanding our fellow human beings. But two, that every single person, no matter who you are, really wants to feel like they belong somewhere, you know? And what what we've done with the system and post-release, especially, it's, it's the most important thing, you know, going on right now, is that we've, we've done what you mentioned. And I want to drill down on that, Ken. We've made a second class of citizen in this country. And, you know, who, who in the world doesn't want to be loved and supported? I mean, really, honestly, when you get down to it, no matter how hard you are, like really, that's what people crave in the in the very core of their being. And when we create this separation with people and we stop looking at them as human beings, but as a is either a, a former, you know, even adding that formerly incarcerated, you know, returning returning citizen, you know, I mean, I know we've been trying to come up with languages that may are more compassionate and loving, but really, how about just human beings? You know, we all we all make mistakes every single one of us i still make mistakes that's right you know i struggle with my relationships but the fact of the matter is that that every single one of us has a story to tell and the more that we can tell it to each other and not feel judged and not feel singled out or different the better 
And that's part of the reason we started the show, you know? Absolutely. No, I appreciate that, Kevin. I think, I think you hit like, you hit like 10 home runs just in that little segment that you just spoke on. And I think that, you know, the second class piece, I think in this country, how, how we got here is really because people in this country, and I'm generalizing the system in this country, likes to objectify other people. And we do it, you know, it's, it's, we do it with the Asians when, when um, COVID came. We do it when it's the blacks that did this, it's the Mexicans that did that. It's the, you know, when, when HIV first came, it was, it was the gays that did that. You know, it's all different types of different objectifications that we put on folks. And I think that understand at the end, end of the day, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. We're all human beings. Every single person in this country has at one time or another told a lie or did something that they weren't proud of or, or, or that they're ashamed of or that they wouldn't like to be known as. And, you know, I, I don't have any problem telling people. I said, you know, I want you to think about it, the time that you told a lie in your life. And just imagine just for a moment that if every conversation you ever had, the first thing that everybody considered you as is a liar. Like that, that wouldn't be a great definition for you to go by, right? And most people would like, they, they, they couldn't wrap their head around it and, and they don't wrap their head around it. And then they think like, oh, wow, I would hate that. Yeah, of course. Like I did something when I was 27 years old, 25 years ago, I got locked up in 1995. And you know, now, I mean, I'm, lived two or three lifetimes since then it seems like right and 25 years ago and you know i want to be able to move on from that poor choice absolutely it was a poor choice i own that 100 percent. but i've also made a lot of great choices and i don't want to be defined out of the millions of choices i've made in my life by a single choice that i made on a given day and i think that what i like most about the platform that i've been blessed with is that I can prove the naysayers wrong and show them the potential and the possibility of folks who they wanted to throw away. And, and I want you, I want, it's, it's difficult for me to discuss, but three years ago, the state of California s- sent me a message and had been sending me a message for almost 24 years that my life wasn't worth living. I had 52 years to life. I had two life sentences for a non-serious crime. My earliest possible release date was gonna be when I was 82 years old. Now, you know, for black men, the average life expectancy is 71. So, so they, they didn't expect me or think that my life was worth living. And so the way that we throw human beings away, like Suave mentioned the 6,000 lifers, right? In California, there's, you know, 20 or 30,000 people that have life sentences of some form or another. The way that we dispose of human possibility and human potential, every single human being is redeemable Every human, single human being has value. Every human being should be told and shown that they have value. And that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences for things. You know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is if we spent a, a fragment of the time investing in human potential and possibility, as we do for saying, I'm gonna take Kevin McCracken, I'm gonna give him 492 years. Like, how ridiculous is that? You couldn't live 492 years in seven lifetimes, right? So, so the, the way that we think and the perspective that we have about we're just gonna pour it, we're gonna punish you. I wanna be the one that pulls the trigger. I wanna be the one that, that pulls the switch to see the gas go, like all of that is destructive, cancerous, 
unhealthy, not human-centered perspective and behavior. And I think that we're, if, we're, if we're a civilized society, which is you know what people say that we are, you know that's debatable on any given day. <laughs> um, if we're civilized, I think we should move past this notion that we can throw human beings away. It's not good for a community. It's destructive to communities, it's destructive to families, it's destructive to businesses, it's destructive to government, it's destructive all the way around, right? So I, I think that prisons, the purpose of prisons and what we do when people enter a prison should change drastically. They should look more like college campuses. They should look more like what goes on in Norway. And, and let's get away from these 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. The data doesn't support giving somebody a 60 year sentence. The data says that if somebody does something at 21, by the time they're 40, they're crimed out. They're, they'll probably never commit another crime in life because of maturity and human development and all the other things that, that happen for folks. So yeah, just we, we, we need to get away from that, Kevin, and, and really look at the value of people. I'm not talking about screaming like, oh, I'm talking about if you could put every emotion of the human spirit of hopelessness, pain, agony, hatred, all these emotions, frustration, while you're locked in this cage treated like some animal. This is a behavior modification, psychological a low intensity warfare against the mind of a human being. But the only way we could get away from that is if we start electing leadership, they think likewise. Yeah, sure. You know, well, we have to advocate for it. That's, that's our job, Swabe. That's why you're in the position you're in. You got, yeah. to, you got to talk to some of them folks. I got to too, Kevin you know, too. That's and, why you're doing the podcast. And the reality is that, and, and even for people that do the type of work that we do, the reality is we don't have it no support. Because what we have is a bunch of guys and women. How the heck you get there? You supposed to do this. You supposed to do, you know, but people, I always tell my brothers and sisters when they come home, leave that entitlement mind behind bars. It don't work out here. It don't, it really don't work out here. I'm entitled to this because no. And I think that that's one of the things that in Philadelphia, stop the movement, stop the struggle, stop the process. Because people think, because you are working in, in an institution that now I could go there and do whatever I want because I spent 40, 50 years in prison. You know, and I'm like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You know, so I think that some of the brothers and sisters coming home, they really need to understand that the bubble that you in, when you inside, that's a different bubble. We see the world when we inside from a different perspective. This bubble out here is the reality, which is they don't care if you've done 30, 40, 50 years. If you don't have good credit, you're not gonna get a decent place to live. That's reality. And if you decide to max out, like some brothers do, you probably become instantly homeless going into a shelter. So there is really no win for some of these brothers and sisters coming home other than to support those that are already in position that could help you get there. Period. 
that's just how it goes. Whether somebody like it, well, you eating, they paying you, but do you know what it took for me to get there? They just ain't open the book and say, oh my God, pick him. It's a struggle. I was hired for a job last year as a case manager, hired, went through the training. When the background check came, I got a letter of rejection because of this in 1980 something, we got to rescind the offer. This is, that's the reality, you know, and this is what people need to understand in America. We still dealing with America, what in America that hates the ground that black and brown people stand on. We still dealing with that. We still dealing and in America where HR departments are separated from other people in the institution. So they are making decisions based on your life, based on your past, without asking nobody. Can I ask you a question, Swapin? Yes. You can ask me anything you want. I, I appreciate that. I think, I think if it's okay, I would love to be able to just touch on what some possibilities and solutions are to some of the things that we've laid out, because we've laid out a lot of heavy stuff. And, and oh, of folk, course, of course. Folk. I think there's a lot of possibilities and solutions, but 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 also we need to be clear with some of these people because a lot of people that hear us are normal people, are people that's coming home, they're hearing us, right? That it's not an easy path. No. It's not an easy path. And we have to mentally be prepared for that. That's it's right. not an easy path, you know? And, and for those that think that it's easy, I got this, you're heading down the wrong path. That's right. I'm hoping I'm hoping that conversations like these can can spur us to think about things in a different way. And one of the things that I'm really interested in pursuing over the next couple of years is how to get people's records closed in the same way that we do for 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 the youth, for you know juveniles. And you know I think that if, if people do certain things, whether get off parole or get off probation or complete a program or do something else that we should be able to close the books and maybe have some type of staggered, I don't know if it's expungement or record sealing or whatever. Cause at the end of the day, if you've been out of prison five or 10 years or three years or whatever the number is, the only person that really should be looking and have access to what you did 20 or 30 years ago are the courts in the, in the event that something else happened, right? Whether a landlord or an employer or whoever, like that stuff has to have a time period. You can't be known as that by that decision or by that mistake in perpetuity. So I think there's a real opportunity to say, you know, once people get out of prison, A, they pay their debt to society and we should, we should pass something and legislate something that says that that's the case. And then B, once people get off of a supervision and complete, you know, whatever type of programs, whether it's education or job certifications or whatever, and they move into a different trajectory of their life, we should be able to close the books on that stuff and, and start sealing stuff or expunging stuff. That way we don't run into those situations like what Suave described, which is A, did all the right things. B, went to go to work, which is what everyone says that we're supposed to do, got the job. And then only after he got the job, did they come back and say, oh, by the way, 25 years ago, you had a record. So therefore we're gonna rescind the offer, which is the same ban the box law they have in California. Right, which is something I don't advocate and talk about often, ban the box, because it's really more form over substance that allows them to delay the decision. And Suave just gave a perfect example, like what difference does it make if you tell me up front 
that I can't do it versus making me go through five interviews. And then after you offer me the job, <laughs> then you break my heart and tell me after you offer me the job that I can't have the job because I had a criminal record. I mean, I don't know which one is worse. I'd rather you tell me up front. <laughs> Real. I think you bring up an interesting point because in California as a former felon myself who did not cross the threshold into state prison, even though I had a suspended sentence going to Walden House for two years, I got to expunge my record. Ken, on the other hand, who did his time in state prison because he crossed that threshold into that state prison and was given a number, cannot expunge his record. Why is that? Right. It's utterly insane. Right. And probably many of the guys that are coming out, at least the ones I'm working with in the program I work with in San Quentin, did a shit ton more work than I did, you know, right. on themselves, on restoring their, their, the, the, doing restorative justice programs, restoring their communities by going and having hard conversations with the victims of their crimes, by going to school and getting degrees, by taking anger management, by, you know, fill in the blank here. And they, they don't have the same access to an expungement that I do because California state law says the minute you set foot in a state prison, in a penitentiary, and you get your state number, you don't get to do that anymore. I had guys that I was in the bullpen with that I did much worse things and way more worse things than they did that ended up in state prison that can't get expunged, you know? And it's just, it's crazy. And I think Suave really hit on something important as well. But this system, you know, is just, it, all it is is just the descendant of, of slavery, you know, and people can candy coat it all they want. The fact of the matter is it, this system was set up and is working exactly how it was meant to work. And, and let me close with this. You know, when I had these other survive paycheck by paycheck jobs, my supervision fees, or $10, $10. I had to pay supervision fees. Now that I got hired at community college, my supervision fees went from $10 to $30. You know, why should a person that's doing everything you're requiring them or asking them to do, pay more when they're doing better? It should be the other way around. Do better, you pay less till we weed you out of this. But no, now I'm mandated to pay 30 mandatory every month. Because if you don't, it's a violation. And with that, I got to say, thank you, America, for listening. If you heard it here first, you know how it goes, Kevin. No, it's official. Listening to <laughs> DBI. I, I appreciate you, Suave. Appreciate my you, question Kevin. to you, Ken, is from now on, when anybody asks you, what is your favorite podcast? What are you going to respond? I'm, I'm going to say death by incarceration. Thank I, love you. It. I, I appreciate both you gentlemen. I look forward to having future conversations with you. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at death by incarceration podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at death by incarceration on Instagram at DB incarceration on Twitter at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at deathbyincarcerationpodcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC, produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken, editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, 
Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. Media Podcast.